Dr. Stu's podcast at drstuespodcast.com. On iTunes, you can subscribe to the podcast. And we encourage you to do that. Write Dr. Stu a nice review and give them five stars. And you'll get an alert every time there's a brand new podcast. And make sure you check out the website here at drstuespodcast.com for all of the uh, blogs and all the good stuff on the right side of this website. I'm dealing with Randy Wang's cat, Jamie, who appears Dr. Stu like she wants to eat this pen. Yeah, she took my pen. Off she goes. Yep. And by the way, I got to applaud you. You got a pen with a pharmaceutical logo on it. I've never seen a doctor carrying anything with a pharmaceutical logo on it. (laughs) Yeah, that's the the most we can get now from a pharmaceutical company. (laughs) No more trips to Jamaica? No trips to Jamaica. It used to be Laker tickets, box seats. Now it's... A pen. Was it really like and a, st- was and it really- a stale chicken sandwich occasionally? Oh, that you can't beat that. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Was it really as as uh, as? Oh high yeah, they used to have, as- they used to have parties in the boxes at, La- at Laker games and wow. And uh, we used to go golfing. Oh wow, how nice! Right. They banned yeah. all that. Yeah, well, it's the go-go eighties and nineties. Well, now broken. now I'm so busy uh, reading emails that uh, I don't have time for uh, for golf for golfing for free. We'll get in a moment to our guest here, Doctor Ed, who's joining us for a second round here on Doctor <laughs> Stu's podcast. <laughs> You're having a battle with the well, cat. The cat's trying to eat the pen, and I think I have an obligation, a moral obligation, to not allow that to happen. Here, this is a great email from Amy. And it says, hi, Dr. Stu. My name is Amy. I was wondering if I could be able to have a natural birth after three C-sections. I know most would say it's not safe, but then again, doctors. What? Yeah. She writes in again. Who would say that? I don't know. Do you know anybody who might say that? No, I don't know anybody. Okay. Yeah. She says it's not safe. I I know most would say, and then doctors convinced me to get a C-section in the first place because they thought I couldn't do it. Anywho, in your professional opinion, is there any success rate for a VBAC after three C-sections? Please let me know. Thank you so much. Signed, Amy. Amy, thank you for your email. Yes, Amy, uh, 13 hours ago on the floor at the Sanctuary Birth and Family Wellness Center, I was sitting in the bathroom floor delivering a woman who was having, excuse me, I used the wrong terminology. I'm going to be spanked by my midwife colleagues. I wasn't delivering the baby. I was assisting. You were catching. I was the baby, catching the baby. Oh. oh my God! I'm in big trouble. Yeah, are they that sensitive am, to one oh, uh, one at one we, verb? We had a uh, uh, midwife peer review meeting. I'd like to say one shout out to the uh, LA Midwife Peer Review Group, and that is that the only peer review meetings I ever used to go to at the hospital were like, how could they make your life more miserable? How could they pick on you? How could they be mean to you? And I've never been to a more nurturing group of women than the L.A. peer review midwife meeting, which I went to last Friday. That's great. I think it was Friday. Yeah, Friday. Anyway, so I was on the floor at the sanctuary uh, catching. (laughs) I did it again. (laughs) Whoops. God. Three strikes and you're out. You're under two here. Catching a a, a baby from a woman who'd had three previous cesarean sections. The first one, she was induced and uh, never got past three centimeters. The second one, she had a repeat C-section. The third one, she was told that VBAC after two C-sections was illegal. And so she had a third C-section. And she was living up in the Antelope Valley area, Palmdale area. And they would not even touch her. She heard about the sanctuary uh, through uh, social media. She came down. She interviewed us about three, four weeks ago. I've only known her for three or four weeks. At 41 weeks and one day, I believe, she went into labor. And she delivered a... Uh, seven pound, twelve ounce baby on the bathroom floor on the on the birth stool. It can be done. I've had four women now who've had VBAC after three C sections. Um, the NIH consensus statement talks about the safety of VBAC. The problem is there isn't a lot of data on VBAC after three C sections because there aren't a lot of women who have tried it. So there aren't any good studies about it. There are certainly risks involved with it. But there are also risks involved with a fourth C-section. And especially if you want a fifth or a sixth child, 
then a fifth and a sixth section, including placental problems and stuff like that. So the, tr the hardest part you're going to have about doing a VBAC after three C-sections is finding someone willing to do it, right? Because it, it, it can be done. And again, it does depend on your individual history. It depends on how your pregnancy goes. There's lots of variables that, that so no one can say yes or no. There is no guarantee when you get pregnant that you're going to have a good outcome. There's no guarantee that a vaginal birth will be a good outcome. There's no guarantee that a cesarean section will be a good outcome. So you have to take that into consideration. And that's what you know, the midwifery model does is it, it, it makes people realize that there, you know, some things are beyond our control, but we, go, we follow evidence-based medicine and we give people informed choice. And you do have that choice. Again, the, best, the hardest part is going to be finding somebody who can do that. Amy, thanks for your email. If you have an email for Dr. Stu, ask Stu at gmail.com. That's the email address. Dr. Stu and, reads every email that comes in. And I would like to add that the same sort of goes true for breach delivery. There are very few breach providers. Uh, Ed, Dr. Ed has been very gracious in the previous podcast in, in supporting me and saying th nice things about me and my breach deliveries. Uh, I was well-trained to do breach delivery. Uh, this past week, I did two breach deliveries. One was a first-time mom who found out she was breech. She transferred her care. Uh, a couple weeks later, she went into labor and delivered uh, her baby no problem. Wow. The second uh, mom was having her sixth baby. And the baby's been headfirst all along. She comes in two days past her due date. And lo and behold, at 40 weeks and two days, her baby's Frank Breach. It seems like we were joking that I'm a breach magnet, that babies automatically turn breach in my presence. It's sort of an odd thing. Right. And anyway, two days later, she went into labor and she had a vaginal breach delivery at home in, a, in less than three hours, in one and a half pushes, which is typical for a woman having her sixth baby. But I would say that in every other practice in Los Angeles, except possibly one, even though she'd had five previous vaginal deliveries, if she was found to be breached at 40 weeks and two days, they would have all scheduled her for a C-section within a day or two, and she would have had a cesarean section. So I'm, not, you know, I, I'm patting myself on the back a little bit, but I'm doing what is evidence-based and what is a reasonable option, and women need to know, and you need to tell your friends and other listeners that if they are breached and they're told they should have a C-section, that they should... Listen to that, but they should also seek out other information. Very interesting. Thank you, Amy, again for that email, and thanks for the very uh, very sensitive and, and informed answer. We're joined here on Dr. Stu's podcast, second time around for Dr. Ed Saraf, who has been practicing for 10 years. He's a pediatrician, five and a half years, right here in Los Angeles, down there by Cedar sinai real close to the hospital, right? Yes, sir. Okay, and we, we thank you for coming back and doing this. <laughs> Pleasure. Yes. Because there were a lot of things we wanted to get to in the first podcast with you, but we didn't have time to do he, it. He came a long distance for this pod for the second podcast yes, he did. <laughs> one very quick thing yes. with what dr Stu said <laughs> again one of the amazing things is you you it's very difficult finding a practitioner like dr Stu. so if you go around the country you're not you know not every place you have someone so experienced in delivering and being very comfortable in doing these types of deliveries so not everyone will have that option or that you know, um, expertise. So are you so, suggesting, Dr. Ed, I, I want to... Thank, thank you, Dr. Ed. Yeah, and thank you, but I want to ask a but-if question. Are you saying then that oftentimes Dr. Stu talks about, uh, eh, sort of laments, that, uh, you know, nobody else will do this. Are you suggesting that it's an honest sort of lack of comfort that other physicians have with doing it? Or do you think it's just sort of expeditious practice and they're trying to get C-sections and get them in and get it out? Or is it sort of a genuine fear or concern that the physician has and not feeling comfortable because quite frankly in in, uh, in with deference to dr stew uh 
is sort of take issue with some of the things he said in the past. If my physician didn't have complete confidence or comfort with a procedure, I'd want him or her to say, you know what? I can't do that. Right. You can ask uh, Dr. Stu and, and you will see that there's very few practitioners who are trained, for example, in breach deliveries. There is not many around the country. So again, so part of it is comfort. Part of it may be scheduling. And, and I'm not saying every OB, you know, is on their schedule and waiting to C-section. There's many wonderful OBGYNs that, are, that, that take care of their patients and wait for the mother to go through you know, delivery process and they'll use C-sections as a la last resort. Mm. But to get that expertise, to have house calls like what Dr. Stu does, to have the teamwork with the midwives, which I give a big shout out to as well. I've had a lot of great experiences with many, many of the midwives and we have a, you know, it's such a wonderful thing when you have, you know, a home delivery and you go there and patients are just happy and comfortable and they've had this wonderful experience. Um, you know, and not have to, you know, they, they have options. It's just that most people don't know they have options. And, and where Dr. Stu comes in, there's a lot of options. Yeah, there's many communities, obviously, that don't have any options at all. But that doesn't mean that you can't seek them out. I mean, the birth of your baby, as we've discussed many times, Brian, is a, the, one of the two possibly most momentous of moments in a woman's life. And it isn't something that should be taken uh, lightly. So, you know, we have people at the, from the, you know, that come from the sanctuary, that come to the sanctuary from several parts of the country. And it's happening more and more. We're getting contacts, whether it's from far away in, in, in California or from Colorado or from Ohio or from Michigan. We've had people come out or Oregon. We've had people come out and come down to L.A. and, you know, toward the last month of their pregnancy, just stay in Los Angeles because it's a, a, a rare choice. This horrible weather, you mean, doctor? Yeah, I mean, why would they want to come and spend a month here in Los Angeles? I mean, with all of this terrible weather. It's only no, but, 80 degrees but right now. But yeah. isn't that great, though? You're seeing people come from all over the country like that. That's wonderful. I don't think I've ever yeah, heard and you part say of, that. Part of it is to credit you, Brian, and, and, oh, and your, your brilliant idea of Dr. Stu's. This is Brian's idea, by the way. I want everybody to know that. that Dr. So if Stu's you don't like it, send me the email. Would not have been born without Brian and Conrad's the... Uh, the restaurant where I went the other night on Saturday night by myself at midnight because I was sitting there at about 11 o'clock at night and I said oh my gosh it just descended upon me this craving this sort of overwhelming craving for a burger french fries and a sprite and what, I, I what go, a shocker yeah I mean that's, good, thing, good thing Randy doesn't have a mic right now right? yeah right <laughs> he'd be commenting yeah he would be commenting but so, so I had to head, I had to go down there at midnight by myself on a Saturday night and have a burger fries and a sprite but y'all make the doctors happy organic burger you know what I had a salad did I you call a, did you call ahead so I was wait, waiting for you uh, no I didn't know I'm not that particular gluten free bread yeah but I, 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 I no no was sorry I just but not I did, Brian I did have the salad and I said load it up with croutons I need some bread products on that so they accommodated me did you go with the creamy ranch or did you go with the vinaigrette you know what I don't use any dressing on salad I've never had a salad with dressing on it. I'm a real nut. That's pretty healthy. Well, makes it separately. But the, yeah, that's right. You, but the, I yeah, he makes it up with a ketchup. No, you know what I do? Right. I just take a shot of the vinaigrette. You know, I'll eat the whole salad, but then I'll just down a quick shot of the vinaigrette. It works out perfectly. We have an email that we gets got us so much. Yeah, we got so much to cover. So we got yeah, we got we'll to get, get back on here. track. Here. Enough of Brian's burgers and salads here. Okay, askdrstu at gmail.com. This comes in from Mandy, and it says, "Hi, Doctor Stu, longtime listener, first time emailer. Love all caps the podcast." I'm a sanctuary home birthing mama and doula. 
All right. Yeah. I love that. Woohoo. I'm wondering about pediatricians in L.A. and intact penises. You can see why I saved this one for uh, Dr. Ed's appearance. This is interesting. She writes. I don't know that anything about Ed, Dr. Ed's penis, but I know he is a pediatrician in we, Los Angeles. We know Angeles. that he's dealt with that issue with, with the babies he cares for. So <laughs> she writes, it seems they have no idea how to care for them. And she's writing about. Uh, intact penises. Okay. I've personally had the experience of my pediatrician trying to pull back my son's foreskin, express concern about it being, quote, too tight, and wanting to refer me to a urologist who I'm confident will diagnose phimosis and recommend circumcision. I have doula clients coming to me with similar stories with other pediatricians in L.A. She writes, this makes me crazy because every intact boy I know has the same intact foreskin and all of our boys cannot possibly have phimosis in my opinion. My personal feeling is as long as everything is working properly, there are no infections, we should just leave it alone. My midwife friends who have intact boys have all told me that foreskin will naturally detach with time. And I've done research online that says this usually happens between two and eight years. So why are these doctors, she writes, so ignorant, especially in a town where supposedly the majority of baby boys are left intact? Dr. Stu, would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you. Best wishes, Mandy. Mandy, thank you for that email. And we'll get Dr. Stu and, and Dr. Ed on this. And Mandy, that's the, the reason that I didn't read your email when you sent it a, a month or two ago is because... This is not my topic, so that's why I was hoping to get Dr. Ed on. We finally, we had a cancellation once. I think I was sick or I was at a birth or something, and then uh, we got him here. So, Dr. Ed, you heard Mandy. Mandy. Let's hear what leave it alone. Leave it alone. No, you, Mandy's wants to leave it alone, but right. your colleagues don't want to leave it alone. So, so it, when you, they will diagnose phimosis, and if you want to Forgive be Forgive me, certain, what does phimosis mean phimosis for our lay people? tight foreskin. Okay. So phimosis is a very appropriate diagnosis, let's say, for a 14-year-old that the skin does not go back at all and there's some pain involved. Yeah. It's too tight, it will not open, and it will require surgery to open up. There's something called paraphimosis. So if you, know, if you pull back the foreskin, you know, and sometimes it naturally opens up, you said, between 2 and 8. I usually say it opens up around 11 and 13 because the kids make sure it opens up right <laughs> around that age. And how, got do, it. and how do they do that? I got <laughs> it. Yeah, the subtlety of a sledgehammer, Dr. Ed. <laughs> right. I got it. I got the whole Sorry. thing. No, no, so, I, yeah. so I tell all my families, leave it alone. You know, you don't even have, you don't have to, you know, at kindergarten, you can teach them what it looks like during bath time, how far it goes. They can play with it slowly to sort of push it back naturally. But you don't have to ever yank it. That is disproven. We, you know, it shouldn't be yanked back. That's old school mentality. There's a lot of literature out there that sort of says, leave it alone. So what percentage, if I might ask, uh, uh, forgive my utter ignorance, because we got two, two doctors and a fat guy. That should be a sitcom. We should do that. Two doctors and a fat guy. I'll write that pilot tonight. So, uh, Dr. Ed, forgive me. The pediatrician is the person who, who does the circumcision? I know it's sometimes well, a rabbi it, it, or it something. It depends right? on where you train and which hospital and which city you train in. So uh, I used to have a practice in Bakersfield before I opened my practice in, you know, in the Beverly Hills area. And uh, over there, all the pediatricians did the circumcisions. So the OBs never circumcised. They just, it was our job to do it. We did it around two weeks. It's not within two days. 
Uh, the kids were not jaundiced. They were doing fine. The parents who wanted their kids circumcised, that's we just did it in the office, in the office procedure. So where are we culturally with this? Because by the way, I just, you know, I, I, you know, 1972, you weren't born on Staten Island getting out of there without meeting a blade. So, it's so, a, you know. so in Beverly Hills, all the OBs do it. It's different cities, different people do it, different yep. times. And it's done within the first day or so, and the patients are sent home. Hmm. Uh, where are we? Uh, there's a trend for families not to want to circumcise. There's just a movement. They say, well, I want my kid intact. Uh, you know, religiously, a lot of people used to circumcise. You know, that's one of the reasons people used to circumcise, and they still do. Sometimes mohels do it, which are rabbis that on the day, you know, on day number eight, which is, you know, more of a biblical uh, covenant yeah. you know per se so there's a lot of and some people will want to circumcise because of medical reasons you know if if a child has a urinary tract infection a boy because we don't tend to get them you know uh and you get more than one under the age of six months one of the treatments are circumcision is it so is, there, yeah, I'm, there are I'm some medical reasons for them is right? it, but they're it, not that common very uncommon so, I, I remember hearing when i was you know because you know when you're in high school and you go whoa what happened to him you know he doesn't look like the rest of us or he you know whatever uh i remember people suggesting it was a hygiene issue i mean that is uh, so untrue it's not a hygiene issue it's uh, and and the other there are reasons people may do it. I mean, it does decrease HIV, it does decrease penile cancer. Well, you know, I, those are just some of the things that you put together as information in order to decide if you want to circumcise or not. When you say it decreases HIV, you're talking about in the, in the gay population. No, I, I, actually, it's more the heterosexual population when you look at it as a whole, because men tend to give HIV more to women rather than the other way around. And the HIV lives a little bit more on the foreskin. So if you look at the worldwide population of HIV spread around the world, and you can look at different continents. Yes, I would say in different cultures that's true. I think in the United States, heterosexual AIDS is blown way out of proportion, at least in my experience. You know, uh, it's extremely rare to see that, and, and there's no other source of infection. You know, or it, But I'm just giving it as a, as a whole. You know, okay. pe when people put it as a pro and a con, you know, the trend is to circumcise less. Right. And, you know, so what, as informed consent, people will see what the pros and cons are, and they can decide if they want to circumcise or not. So there is no reason other than the rare medical reason for... Pushing back the skin or circumcising. Or circumcising. Yeah. There other is than, or a potentially it's a, the, it's the, religious, a preference. the religious reason. In, in, in your there. experience, Dr. Ed, in your practice, and th this really is a quick answer, what what percentage uh, of, of newborn boys are circumcised today in, your, in 2014 in, in Dr. Ed's world? I would say, uh, which it, it may even fit the population right now, uh, I would say 70%, not 30%. Do you think it's the same in Tuscaloosa? Uh, I think probably everyone gets circumcised. Yeah. Yeah. See. Yeah. So Isn't that interesting? Get back to your sophisticated uh, <laughs> consumer. No, I mean, it really, yeah. do, it really does get back into the educated consumer. Some people just, you know, again, in some communities where things are always done, standard of care is an interesting term. We've talked about this before. But standard of care in a community is sort of what the, what the consensus of doctors would do in a community. And in, and in some communities, those things never change because new people coming in, if they don't conform... They get they get run out of town. They're shunned. Correct. Right. So standards don't change, but we all know that standard of care is a is a is a fluid situation. You know, it's a living, breathing document, so to speak, because yeah. um, we uh, we know that standard of care used to be uh, to immediately cl clamp the cord. Now that's changing. We use standard of care used to be to give enemas and shave and prep and 
uh, for women. Uh, we standard of care used to be to keep women in the hospital for seven to ten days after they gave birth vaginally. Standard of care was to put women out in twilight sleep and pull babies out with forceps. I mean, these things change. Mm. So I think the standard, uh, I, at least in our community, is beginning to change. Well, let's hope it, it, it does change. Otherwise, we'll be in real trouble. Yeah, I mean, this gets back to the whole thing that nature designs things to work right most of the time. If it didn't, it would sort of evolve away. And if foreskins were that bad or that dangerous, why would they not have evolved away? The same reason that natural birth, that mammalian birth I talk about all the time, where you know mammals, the C-section rate in chimpanzees and donkeys and, and muskrats is pretty much zero. All right, but in a human being, it's 33%. There's something we're not doing right. And, and we've been intervening just for this long habit of not thinking that it's wrong. We've been doing it that way for so long. And I think it's nice to hear a pediatrician say that it, it isn't really uh, something that's necessary and it should be questioned. Like all the things we talked about on Dr. Sue's podcast, these are, we're trying to enlighten the, the listeners so that they can go out and spread the word that, that there are other choices and you need to seek them out. Thank you for that email, Mandy. We do appreciate it. You mentioned delayed cord clamping. Folks, I am out of this conversation because I don't even know what it is, but I know that this is a, a very sensitive issue. Dr. Stu, Dr. Ed, I know it's a, a big issue for, for Dr. Stu. For, and I, I represent the layperson on this podcast because I am that. What, what is cord clamping? What, what is it? Well, the standard of, the standard of care in, in teaching when I was in residency program, which is you know th 30 years ago, and, and still even partly today, is it's beginning to change, at least in, in Southern California, I think. But when the baby would come out, the first thing that the doctor would do before they did anything with the baby is hold the baby in one hand. They would grab a, grab a clamp, grab another clamp, cut the cord, and hand the baby not to the mother, but they'd hand the baby to the nurse who would take it over to the warmer and do all the things that they do to the babies on the warmers, which are, of course, completely unnecessary. When the baby's being squeezed through the vagina in a vaginal birth, or even at a cesarean, some of the blood that's in the baby is being squished out of the baby into the cord or the placenta. And if you clamp the cord immediately, then some of that autotransfusion isn't allowed to get back into the baby. Now, there's some concern whether by delaying cord clamping, you're going to get too much blood into the baby. And I'm going to let Dr. Ed address that in a minute. But the idea that, that you need to clamp the cord immediately and, and take the baby away from its supply of blood and oxygen only so that you can resuscitate it if you need to by giving it oxygen and blood. I mean, it's sort of crazy. So what is the time that you advocate then uh, in waiting to, to do that? Well, no other mammal has anyone rush in and cut the cord. You know, that just doesn't happen. So when a horse is born or any other mammal is born, the, nobody rushes in to clamp the cord and cut the cord. The baby often walks around for a few hours with the placenta dragging on the ground because there's no reason to do that. So what's the timetable? You know, I would I would say that we let the cord pulsate till it stops, and sometimes we'll just even wait till the placenta comes out, put the placenta in a bowl next to the baby, next, on top of the mother. But once the cord stops pulsating, then there's obviously no exchange going on. So in theory, you could clamp it. Some people don't want to do it. They want to do it in nat nature's way. That's fine. Some people want to clamp it right away because they want to maybe collect stem cells. That's fine. But again, it gets down to informing people what the pros of clamping early versus the the cons versus the pros of camping late and the cons and making that decision. But ultimately, my gut feeling is, is that there's no reason to clamp a cord early. Dr. Ed, your thoughts on that? You know, yeah, I, I'll tell you that the majority of the time we have no say in it. Not, this is much more of an OB issue because when babies are being born, the people right on top of them are the midwives and the OBs. 
And so by the time any pediatrician gets involved, it's not something that we have any say in. Now, if you're asking my opinion with regards to that, I think the best thing to do if everything is perfect is to have the baby bond with the mother and and allow the pulsation to happen. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense to not do that, but it there needs to be a lot of education. In other words, we don't know a lot. You know, can you have polycythemia or too many red blood cells? There are, you know, cases here and there written in the literature that that can happen. It's possible. You know, what are the benefits? Can you decrease anemia? There's possibility of that, you know, as well. Can you increase jaundice? There's a possibility of that. We don't really know that much. This is very new. But the bonding of infant, a newborn infant with a mom, you know, that's that's crucial. It's to take a baby immediately and put him under a warmer when they can bond together. That that's really important. And and nature designed again. We get back to nature's design. Uh, Nature did if the nature if nature thought the baby was going to get too much blood, then it would stop the pulsating very quickly. I mean, there would be yes, there are anecdotal cases on both sides. Of course, there are. But ultimately, if you trust that nature has designed a system that works really well most of the time, why do we have to meddle with it all the time? Why don't we just let it be? And, and mothers and babies in the mammalian world are never separated. The idea that a baby needs to go to the warmer, we've discussed this many times, yeah. is, is for convenience. It's for convenience. You know, and not a baby that needs to be resuscitated, but a baby that's pretty much normal and just needs to be dry, you know, they don't need to be dried off. They don't need to be measured. They don't need to be weighed. They don't need to get shots. They don't need any of that stuff. They need to be with their mother, as Dr. Ed said. One of the beautiful things, especially in this area, you see a lot of our families come and discuss, you know, what they want and how they feel like it. They have a birth plan. So when, when families come into us, we usually say, right, talk to your OB, talk to your midwife, talk to you know, talk about your desires. I had a uh, mom recently who had, you know, uh, who had classical music and she was getting acupuncture, you know, at the same time she was delivering. It was such a beautiful thing, but she had agreement with her team. And this is, a, this is such an important time, as Dr. Stu says, in a, in a woman's life and a baby's life that you can really create that environment if allowed or if you know you can do that. See, and that's interesting, Dr. Ed, you say with the team, and, and I think a lot of, uh, a lot of moms, uh, expecting moms, th- they, they feel when they go in there, they have a consultation with the physician that it's not a team. It's a physician is saying this or that and sort of, you know, do it my way. This is the way to do it. And mom feels, and dad might feel like they're sort of, it's being dictated rather than a team effort. I mean, that's a, is, is that, is that fair? Sometimes that find someone who's going to listen to you. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's good advice. Yeah, where have yeah. you heard that before? Yeah, from this guy here. Right now, uh, interesting. I, I want to mention to you, Doctor Ed, because we were talking uh, before the podcast. I mentioned to Doctor Stu. I have friends who did a home birth, and um, they something. And you're a pediatrician, so I want to bring this to you. Um, dad was talking to me. I'm friends with Dad, and he said to me, when the baby was about a month old, they had the baby at home, and uh, they got a call, you know, from the pediatrician's office, and they said, you know, you got to, you know, bring the baby in, bring the baby in. And he said, okay, and I got a message. And then they called again, you know, another message. And then they called again, got him on the phone. And the way he described it to me, and I don't know if you want to talk to this or if you can sort of identify with this psychology or if you've encountered this in your own practice. But I have to tell you, this dad had a visceral reaction to what he viewed was almost pestering from the pediatrician's office. 
And he said to me, sort of venting to the pediatrician, but doing it to me, he said, you know, we had our baby at home. I'll bring my kid in there when I want to bring in the kid. My kid's okay. What, to what do you attribute that? And, and by the way, I was sort of, um, I was taken off guard a little bit by his passion and his sort of desire, uh, quite frankly, to not bring the baby to the pediatrician. Where does that come from? Let me ask you a question. Was that baby ever seen? It was born at home or was never seen? The baby was born at home and I believe seen within a few days. And then okay. this was coming up on a 30 day or forgive me, maybe it was a two month deal. Okay. So in general, when you look at the establishment, uh, there's a lot of information you can learn. So if it's a one month or two month visit, again, I don't know this particular case of this particular practice sure. calling. Sure. That's not normally done. But at, there are certain milestone ages two months, four months, uh, six months, nine months, 12 months, that a parent and can learn a lot with regards to development of the baby. At a, around two months, for example, I check to see if my babies show any signs of autism. So, and that's very important, the interaction and where their eyes, and, and this is very important for anyone listening to this podcast. A lot of people worry about autism so much. It's very common. It, it's very common and it's also very is it, misunderstood. Is it, is, it, is it very common? It's is it more common, common now or is it just more that we recognize it more? Is it overdiagnosed? I, I guess is the more, question. I think it's more common. I, I really do. I, I think we, you know, it's also more diagnosed because more people know about it. But I do think that it, it is more than than previously and that goes to the previous podcast talking about total toxic load you know people say what is the most important time of a baby's life i i tell them when when they're in the womb when, when yeah. what yeah, do you eat about that. absolutely how do you take care of yourself what kind of creams do you put on do you understand what fragrance what kind means? of emotions are you are you going undergoing Where's what kind of mental? stresses absolutely right it's incredibly important that's where they're growing you know there's antibodies that you can pick out that may be anti-brain antibodies now. We know that we can identify some of those even today so that they're showing you know, possibly signs of autism. So at two months, we, we look at those types of development. I do think that people should come for their well checks. You know, I have a you know, big population of uh, families who may decide not to vaccinate or decide to vaccinate very late. So I still want to see the babies. I can teach families a lot about their babies during those well checks. So again, not sure exactly the particular circumstances of this family, but you know, if you, I spend at two months, that is my main autism, you know, time. That's it, right? That's that, it. For me, yeah. absolutely. Do you, do you think other pediatricians do the same thing or are they back in that, you know, uh, zip them in, zip them out model. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> you already know you the could, yeah. typical well, type I wanna, of model. I want to come on. I, we're, my well checks. We're not. We're not uh, in my office. Words here. It's forty-five minutes. Right. So I, I spend forty-five minutes with the patient. How's a long sit time? Down. Yeah. And I tell the parents to come close. And again, what all of you can do, if listening to this, and if you want, really want to understand how your kids reacting, the most important thing is where your baby's eyes go. So, you know, if they fixate on your eyes and then when you sing and you talk and you have a conversation with your baby, do they talk back? Do they coo? Do they smile? If they have those types of reactions, then you're, in, you're pretty, you can feel safe that they're not going to be autistic. And that's, that comes even before vaccines. You were talking about vaccines a little bit, even though, again, most of our families in my practice don't vaccinate at two months. It's really based on personalized risk factors, and we discuss all of that at one month in detail. That's, that's a 45-minute uh, talk. 
you know yeah this is amazing dr ed i mean i, I want to go out and get a have another baby right now so i can have you take care of them i would love to take because <laughs> i would love to sit and learn what you're doing i got a question for it's you very nurturing people, you know again we have local we have a lot of local listeners in los angeles people wanted to find you how do they find you uh, do you have a website? Do you want to give out your uh, uh, your office number? My, my website is going to go into a massive transformation. It's going to be very integrated. But you own the domain name, but though, right? It's it's pediatricgems.com. Okay. And and our office number is very simple. It's 310-888-7778. What a great number. And by the so, way, if you want to get in contact with Dr. Ed, uh, and 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 yeah, obviously it's a podcast, not live radio, folks, and just go back and click back and hear that number again. You can always email us at askdrstu at gmail.com, and Dr. Stu will forward to Dr. Ed. Yeah, and then the, uh, lastly, before we run out of time, I wondered if you'd give us a quick Dr. Ed uh, comment on uh, your thoughts about vitamin K and erythromycin and at, at birth, and what do you think about that? Absolutely. Um, so uh, erythromycin is really great for STDs. So if you have an STD or if you don't know if you have one, you're not sure, and you want to put the erythromycin eye drops in, great. You but know. if most people have been screened for gonorrhea and chlamydia Correct. and it's negative, even if they're positive beta strep, they don't need that. They, they do not. That's different. That's for meningitis. Does it sort of interfere a little bit with uh, if you put the, cre uh, the ointment in? Does, do babies have a little more trouble in the first few hours? It, uh, it, it depends. We don't know that, I really, guess. We, it really depends if, if a child has sensitivities to any product of the erythromycin. Does that happen commonly? No. If, the, if parents decide to do erythromycin, will it be harmful? Generally not. But if you have a sensitivity to that component of the antibiotic, can you get red rashes or an allergic reaction? Yeah, although most newborns Possibly. don't have any of those sorts of sensitivities, do they? No, you know, it's, it's, again, part of your total toxic load. Is it necessary? If it's necessary, then it makes sense. If it's not necessary, do you really have to do it? If they get a conjunctivitis because their ducts are, you know, clogged up, then you can certainly treat that afterwards or you can use homeopathy or what I love, you can use breast milk. Yeah. Breast milk has a lot of IgA antibodies. It's wonderful great. for orifices, eyes, nose, mouth, GI tract. They're great. Well, that's good to hear because, you know, I've been doing home birth now for uh, three and a half years and three and a half years ago, I bought a, uh, a tube of erythromycin ointment I haven't opened it yet. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, right. Uh, it's yeah. probably expired. I better probably get an order. Wow, when it one, says use as needed, you're not kidding, right? right. Yeah, right. And so vitamin K then. Vitamin K, um, if people, when people ask me about vitamin K, I tell them their general risk factor for bleeding is one in 10,000. So it's not very high. And when you say bleeding, you're not talking about bruising on the skin. You're talking about internal bleeding, right? Correct. It's so it could brain, be or, brain intestine. or intestine, right. major, major area. So it's not a big number. But it's still a number. That means one in ten thousand kids have hemolytic. And problems. how many? And how many? If if people if, if babies get vitamin K, what does that number change to? It obviously doesn't change to zero. We don't know. We don't so know. We don't know. It's but that's okay. a general risk factor when we say. Well, that's one an in, honest one answer, 10, though. Yeah, it sure so, is. <laughs> and then there's other types. Didn't fake, he didn't fake so, that one. No, he did not. No. <laughs> so th then it's oral vitamin. There's you have also other options. If you look at Europe, you know they do oral vitamin K a lot more. That drops the number from one in ten thousand to we don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay. see, but so but, but the standard of care is an injectable. But and, I've heard and I've heard the injectable works better. But if we don't know, then how can they tell me that? Well, it's less. We know that it's less. You know, so that's you know because if if you look at the breakthrough rates in Europe, the they are the numbers are a little bit higher than us. You know, breakthrough so, on the oral. 
the, the, the oral has, you know, I, again, I try to get some hospitals to change policies. But remember, if you have a bleed, hospitals fear, of course, lawsuits. And, you know, so that's that's why that will never change. There's no oral um you know option yeah i mean in the in the mind of an administrator the risk benefit ratio is so what's a little shot in the thigh correct and 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 if to be honest i'm okay with vitamin k when you have when you worry about risk factors here again total toxic load is vitamin k okay when you look at uh when when you look at the risk of the severity of a problem and and you look at the side effects once you give a hundred two hundred three hundred thousand doses of anything you get rare side effects. That's where your drugs, you'll see, because they don't do 300,000 people, right? They don't test drugs on 300,000 people or vaccines on 300. But in practicality, so, that will come out. It will come out. All, all sorts of rare side effects come in. Now, when you give billions, you know, vitamin K has, you know, is, mm-hmm. has your billions of doses, yeah. you can pretty much feel comfortable that that's a very safe type of treatment. Well, recently, as I was revamping my website, I was revamping my informed consent for vitamin K, and I looked at some recent literature, and it sort of tipped me to the scale that if a patient really wants to know what I feel, I think that there's that the benefits of vitamin K far outweigh the risks, and I'm, I'm a pro-vitamin K kind of guy, and I think if you're going to give vitamin K, then you might as well give the one that's known to be more effective, which is the intramur- uh, intramuscular dosing, as opposed to the oral dosing. And then, of course, when it comes to oral dosing, then there's then there's the synthetic kind and then there's the plant-based kind uh, and I don't even know if you know anything about yeah, those differences. I have what do you many know? families who you know again choose. I, I tell them wait, don't make a decision now. Wait to see how your birth is. Do you have bruising? Do you so, have so is there a relevance to baby with bruising on the top of its head or a breech baby with a bruised butt and internal bleeding in the brain or well, the in the in the intestine? Well, the jaundice can increase as well. So you know, again, you don't know. You know, we don't know hundred percent if there's a correlation. You know, with regards to that. But okay. you know, if you're circumcising, guess what? You do need to give vitamin K. Right. You know, right, which is why it's good to wait till those week one or two weeks go by. Because if you give vitamin K and then you section, and then you circumcise them the next day as they do in the hospital because they want to do it before you go home, that doesn't make much sense. Generally speaking, with those patients, I would say do an injectable if you're going to be circumcising because you that Correct. is one of the most that out of circumcision when it comes back to the, your question with that, the probably the biggest complication I see is the possibility of bleeding. I've done you know so, when, in in my older days, my previous life, I I was one of those Cedars physicians who did the circumcisions because obstetricians did them at Cedars. Right. And in my career, I've probably had two babies in 30 years that ended up going back to the ER, uh, you know, eight hours later because mm-hmm. they continued to bleed. One yeah. of them actually turned out to have hemophilia. There you go. Oh, right. Wow. So you couldn't have helped them with vitamin K. No, it couldn't have helped them with vitamin K, but it was, a, it was uh, it's, I found out later it's a common way that, 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 may, that boys present, well, 100%. Um, almost, all, almost all hemophiliacs are boys, but that they present with uh, hemophilia is a, a circumcision that won't stop bleeding. Absolutely. Right. Uh, right. Uh, all right. Uh, very interesting stuff. Dr. Ed, we can't thank you enough for coming back for round two of Dr. Stu's podcast, for getting this in. This was great, Ed, uh, Really, pleasure. terrific stuff. Great information, honest answers. Really great conversation, Dr. Stu. It's so pediatricgems.com? Yes. Pediatric and that will change soon with right. a pod, well, you know, and, and yeah, if, it's, um, it's a big revamp. Oh, you're going to change the domain name too? Uh, I'm not sure yet. Oh, okay. All right. and if you well, a, we'll, let it, we'll announce, we'll announce yeah. it when that happens. We will. And if you have a problem with any of that, you can email askdrstu at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with Dr. Ed Saroff, who has joined us for two great podcasts. Thank you so much, Dr. My Ed. Pleasure. Thanks, really Ed. Pleasure. Pleasure, pleasure to meet it. you. Thank you, Thank Brian. You so Dr. Stu, as always, I appreciate it, my friend. See you soon. I'm going home to bed. 
yeah, I'm right behind you. Well, I'm not going after, to your house. After but. I watch the Kings game. <laughs> oh, yeah, good East luck. East Coast game. It's on right now. We're mi- I'm missing the first period <laughs> for Dr. Stu's podcast. Yeah, I just well. want everybody to know. And by the way, no updates. Nobody, Anybody listening, nobody texting me. I don't want an update. Okay. Oh, yeah. wait, wait, wait. We're not live, are yeah, we? Yeah, no, it's fine. Oh, that's it's right. It's fine. <laughs> the game's been over for a week and a half already. <laughs> oh, well. Thank you for joining us. Subscribe to Dr. Stu's podcast on iTunes. Give them five stars. Write a nice review. And make sure you keep coming back here to drstewspodcast.com. For Dr. Stuart Fishbein, I'm Brian Whitman. Thanks for joining us.